Hey everybody and welcome to this special report from The Shift. This is the Russian Roundtable. I just want to give it a quick introduction uh, and then we'll go right into the conversation that I just had uh, with myself, uh, journalist Riley Wagaman, who is an American-born journalist, but he's been working in, in uh, Russia now, lives in Moscow uh, for a number of years, uh, and uh, the infamous Captain Wardrobe. Um, the three of us together, I think, have presented a, a pretty decent conversation uh, about what's happening uh, in the Ukraine uh, and in terms of the big picture analysis as well. Uh, as many of you may know, uh, I've just recently written a blog post, uh, it'll be posted in the show notes here, uh, that discusses the dangers of uh, ingesting, I think, too much Western propaganda. We're ending up having these propaganda wars all over social media. It's uh, either I believe this narrative or I believe that narrative, and all of these people are, are really clashing together. And I feel like the conversations that come from that are very stilted and very one-sided, uh, very antagonistic. Uh, I think this conversation is going to have a lot more nuance than uh, a lot of what you're seeing. And I, I just think it's a just that that process of having quality conversation about these important issues is so important. So I hope this is an example of that. Uh, if I was to uh, just kind of preface the conversation, I think I'm probably the the Putin apologist or uh, maybe a little bit of uh, of an uh, ideologue when it comes to my interpretations of the situation. Uh, Captain Wardrobe provides a, a very uh, succinct overall big picture um, to put the, in context, the entire conflict. And then Riley, uh, I really uh, appreciated his opinions because being on the ground in Moscow, his interpretations are uh, very practical, very pragmatic, and include uh, a lot of that Russian perspective that we're missing uh, in the mainstream media here in the West. So together, uh, I think we really balance each other out. Um, we have some disagreements, um, but we still uh, do a good job of really kind of talking it out. Uh, again, the conversation, I think, has a lot of nuance that you're not going to see in very many other places. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I hope it clarifies the very, very muddied waters that we've all been wading through in terms of uh, the information that we've been receiving about the Ukraine crisis. Um, we're going to have a, in the beginning... We have a really good analysis of, I think, uh, what's happening on the ground in Ukraine, and then we conclude with a bigger picture that uh, that also includes a lot of the the concept of the World Economic Forum, the Great Reset, uh, and we put the whole Ukraine crisis within that context. So again, hope you enjoy this as much as I did, and uh, you all have a great day. Hey, everyone, and welcome to this uh, special roundtable discussion I'm having today with uh, journalist Riley Wagaman. He is an American journalist in Moscow, uh, and we're also joined today by uh, Captain Wardrobe, uh, who's been, uh, uh, I guess I could call him an underground activist for, for decades now. Um, and we are getting together today to really kind of try to dive deep into uh, an analysis of the Ukraine situation and what's actually going on. There's so much, I feel like, so much propaganda happening on both sides, so much disinformation, misinformation. And I think my biggest concern is actually that the the messaging is preventing any kind of rational conversation. And I mean, you know, we can have disagreements, we can discuss different narratives, uh, but we should be having more rational, reasonable conversations about the, the big picture, about what's really going on with the Ukraine situation. Uh, and I'm hoping that today, we can shed some light on what so far has been a pretty extremely shadowy issue. Um, so many people 
just because I think the mainstream narratives are so passionate um, and then people get so emotionally involved uh, that a lot of times we lack that ability to take a few steps back and really analyze the situation. So I'm hoping to, to parse through a bunch of that today uh, and we'll see. We'll see what we come up with. So uh, thanks, guys, for joining me today. And I am really looking forward to this because I think uh, I think we can maybe not find some answers, but at least have a, a good conversation about what's happening that, that can help people uh, think more in the big picture. So um, Riley, do you want to just get started here? Tell people a little bit about yourself and, and what your situation is. Uh, you're in Moscow right now. Yeah, I mean, I live uh, just in a town outside of Moscow. Uh, I've lived in Russia for about eight years on and off. <clears throat> uh, before going solo, I worked at RT for four years. And before that, I was with Press TV. Um, yeah, so, I mean, my, I guess, sort of my focus recently, as before this conflict began, of course, is uh, just dissecting a lot of sort of COVID policies in Russia and talking about the backstory and how it possibly plays into, you know, larger theories about what really was going on with, um, you know, this virus scam, basically, and mm -hmm. how it was being used. So. All right. And uh, El Capitan? Hello. Yes. Um, well, I've been doing uh, sort of what we call conspiracy research or deep state research and stuff for about well, since 9-11, really. Uh, I've never been on a major player or anything like that. I've just been always interested in it just for personal reasons. Sometimes trying to log uh, through the news, actually just scrolling through media and getting the stories I think are important and they're all on my site still. So it's all uh, sort of an archive. But I, I try and keep, I, obviously, you know, I'm doing the same now. I had a break and now I'm back again, especially with COVID. It all started off and bang, there we are. It's just uh, full on. Um, it seems to be sort of a hundred percent pressure on from all sides, non-linear, asymmetric warfare. The lot, doesn't it? Well, I think that's exactly the thing. I mean, I, I feel like um, what we're all dealing with right now is basically military-grade psychological warfare in terms of the propaganda that we're getting on both sides. And I just uh, released a blog post called U.S. Propaganda and Ukraine, because I, I think the, the biggest concern that I'm having right now, at least being here in the United States, is that so many people are influenced by, by a propaganda campaign and they don't even know that it's propaganda. I think in other countries like, Riley, you can speak to this in Russia. Do the do the average, does the average Russian realize, you know, of course it's going to be state propaganda. Of course, we're just getting the state narrative. I, one of the things that kind of surprised me about the United States is that people really have such a feeling that they there's a free press here that they don't see that these narratives are, are government corporate government funded and, and have uh, ulterior motives. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting observation. And, you know, uh, you could probably make the same comment before this conflict in Ukraine started, which is, I think one of the maybe sort of a strange advantage that the average Russian has is that they know that a lot of the information they're getting is not particularly trustworthy because it's coming from state-funded television or, you know, state-funded media. They know what that means because they have the historical reference to understand that governments lie to you. And then in the United States, you just have these totally out-of-the-loop 
naive, gullible people yeah. who are like, oh, yeah, like I read it in the New York Times, so it must be true. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't read the New York Times. And and also, I'm not saying you shouldn't, you know, watch RT or, you know, Russia's Channel One, which is a state broadcaster. But you have to have some way to put it all, you know, put it all in context and, and try to find deeper meanings here. So, <clears throat> yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. And, you know, I, I distinctly remember since I grew up on both coasts, both in California and in Massachusetts, sort of the, the NPR liberals, right, who like turn on NPR on the way to work, driving to work. And everything NPR says is gospel. It doesn't matter how completely ridiculous it is. And yeah. how, is this, how is this any different than listening to, you know, Radio Free Europe or RT or anything, right? Yeah. Totally agree. I mean, it's like everything's now just spoon-fed. It's <laughs> It seems to be it's cartons, you know. It's like your cornflakes. Yeah. It's a commodity. It's Everything's commodified now to a degree. Where it's completely controlled, and alternative voices are now obviously being being just totally shadow banned on Twitter and places like that. Social media is controlled. The control is astounding, actually, especially with this war. It seems to have really ramped up since COVID. It's here. Could it possibly get any any worse? Uh, yes, <laughs> we're going to have a massive right. war, and you're not allowed to do this, and you're not allowed to do that, and all of a sudden it's like. Russell Brand's being called everything from an anti-Semite to a Nazi to a, a people like Russell Brand getting called a Nazi. We're really in proper wrong times, aren't we? There, because like he ain't. I mean, he might have connections with certain families and so forth. A lot of people said he's an elitist, but like when you've got sort of like comedians, oh, hang on, one's in power right now, isn't there? <laughs> it's just we're living in a very topsy turvy, upside down world, you know. And, and when I talked about asymmetric warfare. The, the military use of asymmetric warfare is, of course, when they teach guerrilla techniques. But the, we've got the opposite in effect now, where it's completely asymmetrical because corporations and media are being run by this these nefarious groups. They seem to have plant plants in all aspects of of, of our social infrastructure and and our, our way of, of being able to communicate. You know, I mean, I'm talking obviously with the WEF and think tanks like Demos Council of Foreign Relations, uh, Trilateral Commission, etc. They all seem to, to to be completely controlling this narrative, which doesn't seem to have any voices on the ground in Ukraine. I mean, we don't have any information about aid agencies, any support, logistical support for humanitarian efforts. It all seems to be... I mean, the only thing I've seen is the WEF have actually sort of got the young global leaders involved in what they're calling a humanitarian response. And I, I don't know how upper middle management technique works on the ground in a war situation, you know, because <laughs> that's all they are. They're just policy wonks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Well, I think it's interesting to note, uh, Riley, based on what you said, I think the person that's the head of NPR right now and maybe even the last couple have all come from the Voice of America. <laughs> so, I mean, they they literally get trained at, abroad in uh, um, U.S propaganda blatant propaganda abroad and then they come and they run npr and it's like nobody even questions like like nobody no, even kind of really, says you know who's a really good example of this it's not npr but um time magazine so for example time magazine had this guy richard stangle who was the managing editor of time magazine for many years and he was he pushed the afghanistan war big time like this was you know early 2000s etc and this guy after doing like 10 years of you know, really disgusting pro-war propaganda, got a cushy job at the State Department becoming like the State Department's like chief propagandist. And he openly talked about this. And there's this amazing video of him 
where he's fielding these like this Q and A session, and he's like, "Why do people say that propaganda is a bad thing? It's like our way of you know right. explaining history to you know the rest of the world, and <laughs> it's totally legit and cool. So it's so disgusting and it's so incestuous, you know. And so yeah, I mean, it's people got to be careful, you know. Yeah, I think Americans really need to figure this out. I mean, they really need to start to to wake up and understand that what they're being fed is propaganda. Now, it doesn't mean it's all lies, but right. we have to, as human beings, like we have to be able to parse the information that we're getting, know that it's incredibly skewed, uh, and then try to figure out, you know, our own worldview, our own perspectives about these things through like a, a very critical process with a very critical eye of the uh, of the media that we're receiving. And I, I mean, as NPR, like you talked about, you know, for me, it's just so classic because the listeners of NPR seem to just think that it is gospel. It's amazing. Oh, how yeah. It's really <laughs> weird. It's spooky. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, and you know when when NPR does a does a segment, they almost never even source their stuff. Uh, they make claims uh, every day. I, you know, I check it out for like 10, 15 minutes in the morning just to kind of keep my pulse on the, you know, on the corporate news or the government the government angle, and uh, and they they rarely source. They make outrageous. This morning they were talking about Russia's bombing hospitals, killing children. You know, and it was like. They had an interview with a doctor at a children's hospital that talked about, a, you know, unfortunately, yes, in, in a wartime situation, there are going to be uh, some some casualties. Um, but they made it sound, I think, way, way worse than it than it actually is. Um, I guess one of the red flags for me is is the coverage of I mean, we can we can talk about like the coverage of Ukraine now, say, compared to the coverage of the Iraq war when it started or the Afghanistan war or even the complete lack of coverage in Yemen. Uh, So so we're not I mean, that's again, it's just such a huge red flag for me to see how the U.S. media can just, you know, paint Russia as the bad guy with with no nuance, with no uh, real understanding or, or discussion, critical discussion about the Russian perspective, um, and then ignore what's happening in Yemen or ignore, you know, for example, the shock and awe campaign uh, when the Iraq war started and how many civilians were killed in that campaign. We don't know because they didn't cover that. They didn't care about about civilian casualties. They were too busy promoting the war. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it just seems like there's the, the shock and awe campaign was media blitz as well, wasn't it? It was all part of it. It was right. it was like thoroughly rehearsed and prepared with embedded reporters on the ground and embedded reporters in the actual um, operation centres as well. And we're not getting to see anything apart from news reports about Cobra meetings and NATO meetings and then Jen Stoltenberg gives a statement and then, you know, uh, Van Leiden from the EU gives a statement and they just say we're pumping arms we're giving them arms, we're giving them arms. And then you've got the stage sort of press releases where you've got WEF young global leaders crying about, we want a no-fly zone, you know, and it's, you know, to Boris Johnson, another bloody WEF stooge who seems to want to put his hat on when he wants to leave Europe and then suddenly he joins Europe and was famously snubbed yesterday. Did you see the reports? There's all sorts of strange reports of Boris Johnson being snubbed in the EU. And then suddenly, when it's a NATO meeting and all the same people are there, they all love him. It's very strange, that kind of behaviour. And it's like, I don't think, it's very hard to tell what page they're on half the time. They seem to be changing their stance depending on who they're representing and why. All the time. Um, It's confusing. And in terms of press, 
Uh, I mean, I know Eva Bartlett's on her way or is there now. Uh, are we going to have anybody who's alternative on the ground? I mean, most of the people I've seen putting stuff out, especially in Donbass, look like they're plants from both sides. Um, yeah. It's very hard to tell. And the information coming out is pretty much sort of like, bam, this is what you're supposed to think. It's all serial. It's just mush. It's a shame. Well, let's uh, let's do a little bit of an analysis. I, I want to get in, I think, later in the conversation into the World Economic Forum and what may really be behind all of this, because I, I feel like there's a lot of different levels. But I want to start with uh, making a couple of points about at least the Russian perspective um, and, and trying to, I guess, flesh out uh, the validity I think of their point of view. And I, I mean, I definitely have a tendency and I, and I'm actually kind of hoping maybe Riley uh, or either one of you guys can be a little bit of a foil. Maybe I'll play the sort of role of the Putin supporter. I mean, I don't want to say that I'm a Putin supporter, but I was, uh, I have to admit, uh, I was pretty impressed with the way he dealt with the Syria situation. I was really concerned there was going to be a, a UN or a U.S. invasion. Uh, Obama had, we'll all recall the, the, the red line, then there's a false flag, what appeared to me to be clearly a false flag chemical weapons attack, and it looking yeah. like the U.S. is going to invade. Uh, and the U.S. had uh, air support there, theoretically fighting ISIS. They'd been bombing ISIS for months and months, but for some reason it wasn't having a real solid impact on ISIS. <laughs> yeah. And then you know, when Putin said, well, oh, you know, uh, President Assad has invited me in to help. And then the uh, Russian Air Force goes into Syria uh, and the U.S. is like, oh, you know, they almost had no choice but to say like, oh, uh, thanks for the assistance. Right. <laughs> and then in a couple of months, of course, the Russian Air Force was able to really push uh, ISIS back and and uh, maintain a Syrian um, uh, sovereignty uh, and uh, and really probably avoid that that U.S. invasion that potentially could have cost hundreds of thousands of Syrian lives. And at that point, I was like, wow, you know, to, to my mind, Putin made a move uh, that really did save lives, save civilian lives. And I thought, I mean, I think in my lifetime, that's the first time I've ever seen a, a state actor actually do something that I thought was like in the moral right, you know, something that was actually good. And so since that time, I've had a tendency um, to kind of view his actions um, from that perspective. And during the buildup to this whole Ukraine thing, I did think they had legitimate concerns. I don't understand why NATO wasn't disbanded in the 1990s when the Warsaw Pact was disbanded. I think that, uh, you know, the U.S., sending billions of dollars worth of military support into the Ukraine, building these military installations, tr helping to train the Ukrainian army. I mean, to me, it was it was a clear threat to to Russian sovereignty. Uh, I think when the people of the of the Donbass voted to secede from Ukraine, uh, they wanted to become, I think, part of Russia as as uh, the Crimea did. Um, I think that they have uh, the right to self-determination in those parts of the Ukraine. And, and to my mind, you know, if NATO had just backed down, if the people of the Donbass had been allowed to join Russia, as it appears to me that they want to, the whole conflict could have easily been avoided. Um, so that's kind of my perspective, I guess. Uh, let's just throw it out there and uh, Riley, see what you think. What do you think about that? I mean, I also 
supported Russia's actions in Syria. For me, there is no question that uh, Syria was basically under invasion from proxy forces that were armed by the United States and Saudi Arabia and Qatar. And these guys were, I mean, let's just call them what they were. I mean, it was like arming fanatics, terrorists to destroy Syria. And, you know, I think for many different aims, different different goals here. Um, in this case, I don't have a problem with <clears throat> Assad asking, you know, support from an ally like Russia. The I guess maybe my only pushback on what you said regarding Syria is I don't really see this as a, I don't think that obviously it's a it's it had moral implications, but I don't think that Putin did it because it was the moral thing to do. It was because I think there were strategic and sure. strategic reasons, right? And so I mean the way that I would explain that is not because I don't want to sound cynical, is, you know, why didn't Russia intervene to stop the situation in Libya or do more to stop, you know, or do more to stop possibly a situation in other parts of the world that have been totally ravished by all sorts of, you know, U.S. or NATO shenanigans. And some of it might be, okay, they didn't have enough power, they didn't have enough leverage, but, uh, you know, there's always ways, there's always ways to do something. So I feel like this was a situation where Russia had could do something and had strategic reasons to do something and, and chose to do it. And I think it was the right thing to do. Um, in Syria uh, or or now in, in Ukraine? Syria. Uh -huh. Syria. And with Ukraine, you know, I would say, I mean, we should, I mean, obviously there's a lot to discuss here. With Ukraine, my, this is what I would say about Ukraine is I understand that there is a long list of grievances. I mean, Russia has many, many legitimate grievances against NATO, against Washington, against the Ukrainian government, which I think has been totally unreasonable and hostile to Russia. Um, the question, though, is, uh, is the current uh, conflict going to achieve desirable ends for for Russia and also mm -hmm. what what are the consequences of what's happening right now is it are we facing a situation where uh, the actions taken will actually create situations that you know are going to be worse than they would be if Russia had decided to you know take a different path and this is what I'm most concerned about is that whether I don't even think it was intentional necessarily but the problem for me is, I think it's clear that we're seeing that this conflict is really going to have profound global consequences. And I think you could make the case and say, maybe really the best thing to do in this situation was for Russia to just keep this, uh, you know, just keep it cool. And, you know, I don't know. It's just the situation now is so out of control. And I feel like there's so many possible ways this could go terribly wrong for so many people right and i think like with any policy you have to think of the cost benefit right so i totally understand the grievances i understand the nato expansion i understand the neo-nazi funding which is abhorrent i understand donbass i was in donbass but you just have to wonder you know what what is this going to lead to and i'm i really do feel like we are 
in a World War One situation. Like this is like shooting the Archduke, you know, right? Or something because you have, you know, you're taking a, re- a seemingly regional conflict, but it really has global proportions. And I think in two or three years, we might not even remember why Ukraine started, but it's going to change the world, you know. Yeah, I I uh, actually completely agree. I mean, when it, when it first started, I really I I didn't see the larger consequences. I mean, I have to admit to that. I didn't see the larger uh, geopolitical ramifications, and I presumed that Russia was going to go in, do some surgical strikes against the military installations which the U.S. has been building up, the the bio labs that have been contentious over the last few weeks, and and the billions of dollars worth of military aid and training, uh, and then pull right back, and then allow the people of the Donbass essentially to potentially probably vote to join the Russian Federation, much like the Crimea did. And that was going to kind of be the end of it. Um, But then I've seen, uh, as you've noticed, noted these larger ramifications where, of course, the U.S. comes in with with uh, the sanctions, which was totally predictable. But and and I guess I was going to add to what you were saying. I do think that now more than in in previous conflicts and previous situations, uh, Russia does have the economic power. The BRIC nations have been working together towards creating a swift alternative now for uh, I think almost ten years. And I think that Putin probably found himself in a position where he felt like he could take on. Um, he could take on the U.S. sanctions by really targeting the dollar as the world reserve currency. And suddenly this becomes like you're talking about a much bigger deal. Like if he takes the dollar out, uh, if he gets uh, the Saudis or the Chinese uh, or the Indians to start trading uh, Russian resources uh, for rubles or in the Chinese yuan instead of the dollar. uh, I mean, he just asked, I think it was just yesterday. He said that the European Union has to start paying for for oil and natural gas and the ruble to strengthen the ruble. So suddenly we're looking at a a worldwide currency war that's threatening dollar dominance. Uh, And that's the that's the heart of American what I would call an American imperialism is having that dollar in their back pocket, knowing that it's the reserve currency gives so much power to the United States. and it's just changed the whole game, just like you're saying. Suddenly, it comes it comes from this regional conflict concerning the citizens of of uh, of the eastern Ukraine of the Donbass region into this. I, I agree. I can't agree more. Actually, World War One scenario where you've got this group of NATO countries, and then you've got the the potentially the entire BRIC alliance, certainly the Russians and the Chinese working together. Uh, and this tinderbox, it could really explode. Uh, and I definitely agree. I don't think the end result is going to be something that any of us uh, are going to be happy with. I mean, it looks like it could turn into a disaster. Paul, uh, what are your thoughts about all of this? Well, I mean, <clears throat> starting with Syria, I mean, it, Syria was basically an extension of the neocon playbook, wasn't it? I mean, G- General Wesley Clark laid out their plans in the five nation takeover that they wanted to do Iraq, Iran, North Korea, uh, you know, all of their so-called failed states and the rogue nations, as George Bush Jr. called them in the war on terror, you know, and he, and he, and he set out their playbook and, and they sort of, I think they jumped Iran and went to Syria because they saw an opportunity uh, with the bad 
baddie act. You know, one minute Assad is shaking hands with Rumsfeld, etc., just like Saddam Hussein was, and then all of a sudden he's a bad guy who's jailing journalists and oppressing his people. And then they put sanctions in, didn't they? And then it's exactly the same as the Iraq playbook where they sanctioned them and then blamed their leader for it. You know, they were completely and utterly screwed in terms of there was starvation, etc. Right. No, no equipment for hospitals, etc. And so what you saw was Assad was being built up as this baddie generally. And it wasn't like a, a, an immediate thing. It was quite a, a while for, it, for, for all of that to kick off. And, of course, while all that's happening in the public mind in the West or wherever, um, you've got this incursion being put into place where you've got this training and equipping of your Mujahideen, uh, Kosovo ex-mercenaries all going in. You've got the Kurds coming in. You've got Iranian uh, special forces coming in, and not to mention Israeli, all coming in and training and equipping those um, ISIS. You know, and we saw <coughs> Al-Qaeda get rebranded, you know, and that was just, it was so, it, that was really quick. It was sort of like, oh, Al-Qaeda doesn't exist anymore. It's yeah. now called ISIS. Right. And their leader is, what was his name? Simon al-Baghdadi. Simon from Baghdad, that means. It's like, hang on, well, what's his history? <clears throat> and he was killed about eight times, I think. Yeah. And I think that what we're seeing here is is um, really it's 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 a bit different. When, when, when Russia went in in that situation, I think they, they did the world a favour in a way. Because, uh, but it also created a kind of a new paradigm, which is now being tested out even further. So I think they're taking it on even more. I mean, sort of like it, what what seems to me is that there does seem to be a lack of sort of mentioning of what happened in Georgia with Russia, where they went in, right? And there don't seem to be there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, analysis coming uh, and sort of making a similar analysis about what what he's doing, which is protecting his his uh, sovereignty. Um, so going in and helping uh, Assad is, is totally different to actually sort of like invading a sovereign nation, which is, of course, what we what the West did in Iraq, just walked in there twice. You know, I mean, America, I think you're right in saying uh, in Iraq they had the air support, and that is what America does. It basically carpet bombs everywhere. It just It's just pure top-down control. Right. And with the playbook that Putin's done is he's walked in on the ground and he, he knows that they can't come in with air support because that would result in a third world war. It would end up with people getting seriously well we seriously nearly there now. If a no-fly zone comes into operation, that could be it. Mm. Um, so Putin knew that they couldn't give that air support and he probably knew that logistically they couldn't supply ground troops quick enough. And this is why we've seen this armament drive now. Now, the worrying thing about the whole of this is they supposedly had the intelligence we knew they had what they were saying. Russia are going to invade about a week, maybe two weeks before. What what if they had like a couple of months on that? We don't seem to see uh, any provisions for infrastructure, critical infrastructure uh, protection coming on, any support from NATO countries into Ukraine or EU countries. Uh, before Russia invaded, like you would put extra troops around Chernobyl and the other uh, nuclear power plants and bio labs or whatever labs they are, because those, anything can be a bio lab. I mean, a pharmaceutical com company who's got a laboratory could be called a bio lab now, and biotech is, is basically, you know, I mean, they want to build plastic foods, lab-grown meats, they want a, a GMO, everything. I mean, that's WEF. Uh, the genetic mm -hmm. modification and, and, and the, the actual sort of fourth industrial food revolution that's coming. So there was no support for, for uh, protection of critical infrastructure. We're talking water and power and stuff like that. If they knew they were going to invade, that looks to me 
uh, like Ukraine were being held out to dry. Um, right. And I mean, you know, in terms of sort of like uh, what was going on in Donbass, Donetsk, etc., with, you know, eight years of bombing and shelling and obviously very vicious civil warfare going on in sporadic sort of flare-ups that were getting increasingly more uh, apparent as time come towards what Putin did. I mean, you know, it was a couple of weeks before he invaded and it was really getting quite heavy and it was in the papers and people were saying, oh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And obviously uh, Putin's cork has popped, hasn't it? I mean, I don't know uh, whether Riley can, can give us information about the sort of politics over there and sort of what was going on in, 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 uh, in the Kremlin uh, in, in terms of militarism, in terms of, uh, say, his advisors, his close people around him actually telling him he's got to do something or whether it was a decision made by Putin alone. I, I seriously doubt it was. I think there was a consensus made in, in the top of the Kremlin to make, this, uh, to make an all-out invasion. And uh, so, we, again, we know seriously little. We're getting very little policy analysis on the run-up to this, these events from the Russian perspective or from the West perspective and insiders that might be able to give us information. So we're left with this whole very easily labelled baddie again. Like Saddam is saying, like Assad, he's a bad guy. That's it. That's all the West needs to know. But it's obviously a little bit more nuanced than that, isn't it? So I don't know whether Riley could give us any, any whether you know and what, what the press has been like in, in Moscow about uh, how people view the war over there and, and whether they knew it was coming themselves. Well, it, you know, it's really funny because if you look at the statements from the Russian government right up to the eve of the attack, you're basically saying um, any Western suggestion of an invasion was Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister, described it as information terrorism. Hmm. Right. And so and OK, so, I mean, uh, to be honest, I feel like even Lavrov didn't know until right before they mm. went in. I really oh, wow. believe that. And my take and of course, no one really knows, but I've read a number of very interesting um, analyses on these this and. My personal view is that actually this invasion was planned by a very, very small circle with Putin, obviously, at the center uh, and was kept basically a secret from most of the Russian government right up to the eve of the attack. And I think a very, very um, good indicator of this, well, there's many. First of all, uh, sort of how the central bank got caught with its pants down because you had half of Russia's uh, foreign exchange reserves sitting in foreign banks and mm. they had no idea that, I don't think they had any idea that there could be any possible danger to Russia's foreign exchange reserves. Now, the Kremlin is saying we never thought that they would go thermonuclear. We never thought that they would seize our foreign exchange reserves because it's never really been done before. That's a right. possibility, but I really do feel like uh, I don't think that the central bank even knew. I really don't. And, right. and sort of reading between the lines, you get that feeling. Can I um, can I interject really quickly just to yeah, say sure. one one perspective on that may be that Putin was willing to sacrifice uh, the the foreign exchange cash, the reserves that were held outside of the country, because when the U.S. stole that money, that's when the Saudis go what. You know, the U.S. is stealing money. The Chinese go, what? You know, and so that helped to convince these other countries once they saw that the U.S. was willing to take those measures to say, hey, 
maybe we shouldn't be trading with the US and the dollar. Maybe we should be trading in rubles or the yuan. So I just have a, you know, there might have been a strategic motivation behind that. And it might have been a sacrifice they were willing to take. I think that I think that's a legitimate theory. Um, but right. another thing that I want to add to sort of my understanding of what happened and why getting into sort of this sort of very close-knit circle and how this attack was planned is uh, I really truly believe, for example, I'll cite um, Igor Strelkov, who is a very famous, he was one of the original sort of Donbass rebels and he became the DPR defense minister. He's a very, very famous guy. He ended up leaving Donbass and went to Russia, and he's like a big media figure and talks about Donbass all the time. Hmm. He gave this amazing interview, which I think, in my opinion, is very insightful, and a lot of people agree with him, where he basically said, it's very, very clear that whoever planned this attack, whoever was in charge of this, really, truly believed that the Russian military would be greeted as liberators, and they would be able, be able to just drive hmm. to Kiev. And that the entire government would collapse and probably all of the nationalists and neo-Nazi battalions would flee to Western Ukraine. And it would be a cakewalk, very similar to Crimea. Interesting. And and the reason, it's not just a hunch, it's you have a lot of circumstantial evidence, like very, very poor um, planning for, you know, supply, su- supply lines and logistics, like just a a few days of rations that the first wave went into uh, with. Uh, you had situations where Putin didn't even know that conscripts who are, you know, these are young Russian guys who are basically drafted into the military. It's like mandatory military service. And they were sent in because they work as sort of support for the military. They don't do the fighting. They like drive trucks. Yeah. And they were sent in with the first wave. And a lot of them, some of them got captured. And I think some of them even got killed. And it was this big scandal because Putin said they weren't supposed to be there, but they were there. And so I think this signals to me that they really didn't think that anything bad was going to happen. And they got caught. They didn't. And what this tells me is that a few things. One, I think that because of this close knit, this circle around Putin, that someone was feeding him bad intelligence, that he was being fed information, that the political situation in Ukraine was much different than the reality. I really truly believe this. And this is what Strelkov said. He said that they made this huge goof, that they totally miscalculated the political realities in the, on the ground in Ukraine. I mean, think about it like this. Uh, you're planning a situation, operation like this. Where was, you know, the the local politicians or, you know, sort of you would you would you would suspect to have sort of a whole like where was the government in exile that was supposed to, that should have been set up, right? Or Mm-hmm. Or, or people on the ground in Ukraine who are ready to step up and uh, serve, you know, to fill in for when local governments collapse. In fact, Russia still hasn't dealt with this problem in areas where they're currently, uh, you know, where their military currently is. They're still struggling to figure out, like, how to administer these zones because they're not supposed to be occupiers. But also there's like basically a war going on, you know. And so it's there's a lot of evidence to show that they really, really didn't think. It would go. It would be like this. They, I, I don't think that they thought that this would even go to one month. And I think a lot of people, if we're going to be honest, a lot of people in the early days of this conflict were quite convinced that Kiev was going to fall soon. You know, they had those special forces uh, who dropped in that airport near Kiev. There was like a lot of excitement about this. It seemed like this was it. It's all going to come to an end soon. And here we are. It's still going on. You know. Yeah. So. 
something went wrong. Like how severely, I don't know. Obviously, we'll never know. But um, again, to me, this signals that for whatever reason, maybe just for operational security, Putin has kept this a secret, didn't get a lot of the government involved. And I think as a result, he was being he, he wasn't able to, you know, pick people's brains. You know, it was like, well, what happens if this what happens if we're not treated as liberators? What happens if this happens? What happens yeah, if this happens? Right. I don't think that I don't think they planned for that. I don't think there was a plan B. And I think we're seeing the plan B now. And so it's in, in this sense, it's it's a little bit disheartening because you would have hoped that Russia would be would would have these contingent plans all ready to go. I'm not sure if they do because part of me really feels like they're just sort of winging it at this point. Like, right. okay, they took Mariupol. <clears throat> now what? Are you gonna are you gonna encircle Kiev and how is that gonna play out? And it's a mess, you know. Like, how do you, do you think? You um, how I was going to say, Riley. I'm just going to yeah. just going to yeah. add. Do you think? Do you think that this might be Russia's Vietnam and and this might be the Vietnam that Brzezinski wanted in Afghanistan for them? And it's actually more politically, um, uh, it's it's more politically relevant because it's on Europe's borders, and so that could be really useful in terms of armaments and you know the arms industry and a new Cold War. You know, I mean, uh, well, a warm war, an increasingly hotter war. You know. So I was talking to a good friend of mine who's Russian, and we were talking this morning about this, and we I was just asking him like, can you please? I'm trying to figure out what was you know. What was the actual strategy here? What was the game plan when they went in? And he said, it's pointless to even consider this. It's obvious that something went wrong. And the question now is, can the Russian government fix it? Do they, can they actually get out of this? Can they actually turn this around? Because you have to think, you know, I think my biggest criticism of the alt media coverage of this conflict is not, there is a huge laundry list of reasons why Russia should be extremely upset with the West, has been abused lied to betrayed i get it the uh -huh. question though it's not it's not the motivations and the grievances it's is anyone really seriously discussing how russia gets out of this in one piece how we get out of this in one piece <laughs> i think that's a much much more difficult question well it's, it's yeah well i just i mean it's so interesting these these issues that we're bringing up i mean the first thing that comes to mind for me is that i totally agree I actually think the longer that that Russia stays in Ukraine, the worse it's going to be for them. Like I, I was actually surprised when they crossed the the Donbass and they went into the the western part of the country at all. Like I thought they yeah. could have just gone and they could have had a right, really they could have stopped in in the Donbass region and just said, okay, we're taking this or yeah. not taking, but we're, we're securing this, right? And go I mean, do your thing. They had a legitimate complaint because um, complaint there because the people of the Donbass had seceded from the Ukraine uh, when Russia uh, acknowledged that they were independent republics, uh, and then those republics invited Russia in. Now there can be about the legalities of all of this, whether it really was legal or not. But they had a legitimate. Uh, argument as to going in there and quote unquote liberating that region. But then they went ahead and went into into uh, the western portion of the country. And I thought that was, you know, I I extremely bold. And I figured that what they wanted to do was sort of to take out the military installations that had been built up over the last eight years through uh, mostly United States uh, military aid to, to that part of Ukraine. But this needed to be a very quick surgical strike. 
right. then they needed to pull right back to the Donbass yeah. region. And then they, they continue to have that claim of legitimacy for what they're doing. But the longer this goes on in that western part of the country, I think the worse it's going to be for, for Putin and the Russians to maintain that <laughs> argument of legitimacy that they had at the beginning. So, Well, and think of this. Uh, I mean, again, I'm not trying to accuse the Russian military of any sort of, you know, barbarism or anything. But think of the, the irony of this situation is that you are launching a military operation in Ukraine to basically stop what I think are, you know, discrimination against Russian speakers, a whole a whole slew of really disgusting anti-Russian policies. And all the Russian speaking regions of Ukraine have now been flattened by this war. I mean, Mariupol is it's a sad thing to look at now. Kharkiv in the north is a Russian-speaking city. has been really, really horribly abused by uh-huh. this war. And now you have western Ukraine, which is really the most viciously anti-Russian part, which is fine. <laughs> it doesn't really, I mean, it has not a whole lot has really happened in this part of Ukraine. So now you have a situation where it's like, we've like just completely destroyed the, the you know, the infrastructure and these entire areas of Ukraine that we were supposed to be protecting from these neo-Nazis and somehow they sucked us into this urban warfare that's decimated the region. Right. And so it's really not a good situation for Russia. And I'm not accusing them of, you know, having bad motives, but I'm going to tell you honestly, and I I know this person because I've spoken to people and that I know people in this region who fled. Kharkiv, for example, was a pretty Russian sympathetic city a lot of people in Ukraine now are super pissed at Russia for, you know, destroying their livelihoods and, and their apartment buildings all messed up. And it, in war, it doesn't even matter who did it. It's just it happened. And now right. everything sucks, you know. Right. And so in this sense, it's it's really you have to wonder, how, again, how do you win hearts and minds when you're fighting urban warfare battles in the Russian speaking part of Ukraine? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. Um, we've talked a little bit about how the invasion got started. There's so much uh, what what I would call the propaganda here in in the West in the United States that pretends like this is just a mass invasion that they came in. Uh, you know, they came in swinging. They're destroying, blowing up all, all parts of the country. But when I've when I've listened to military strategists who are actually analyzing the situation, I mean, they talk about it like like if Russia had wanted to just go in and devastate Ukraine, they they clearly they could have they oh, could yeah, have they, they could have been using their their air power they could have been using the the big military uh, artillery guns uh, and instead they actually went in with ground troops to fight this kind of more surgical incursion they i i think they honestly wanted to reduce civilian casualties besides despite what we're all hearing in the western press here that they're you know they're willy-nilly killing civilians but maybe this uh, actually backfired on them maybe they uh, Maybe they should have gone in a little bit harder initially in order to prevent this protracted uh, action that they're now dealing with. Yeah, I mean, I think that th- this is the reality. And again, I think, again, it, 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 it was a miss. I think there was a serious, serious miscalculation. And I really think that they didn't expect any serious resistance. Mm-hmm. And and like you said, you know, now, I mean... I'm honestly hearing this. This is, this is not just some sort of meme on the internet. I mean, even in Russian media, you you see, or on Russian Telegram channels, you see people talking about how, I mean, Ukraine is being sort of teed up to become, you know, Eastern Europe, Somalia. You know, you just funnel NATO and the United States funnels weapons, you know, into West Ukraine, 
And this could go on. I mean, this could really become a protracted conflict that can go on a very long time. And it can also spread to other other countries in the region. It's terrifying to think about how many things can go wrong at this point. You know, it really is. Right. Really, really frightening. Well, it's really interesting. It's, uh, yeah, I'm just going to say, um, yeah. it's interesting that Riley should bring up the fact that, that the Russian uh, leadership seems to be completely out of touch with reality. And I think that echoes across into the West as well. I think we're now facing a situation where our so-called leaders just don't have a clue what's going on on the ground in most of their areas as well. There's a complete cutoff now of the political class has become this dominant force. <clears throat> and and But they seem to be... Backing everything up with this, like, you know, UNWEF-laden spiel, PR, that doesn't represent how real people feel. It doesn't represent what's actually going on on the ground. And um, and I think we're seeing the results of this complete and utter overreach. Well, it's been, it's been called an overreach, but it's not. It's just plain political ineptness. It really is. It's yeah. just an obvious, just out of touch with reality of what's going on. You know, I mean, like, where's where was if you're going to, you know, start a major offensive? I mean, one of the tactics you use is you send in your intelligence. You know, you send in your sleeper agents. You get prepared for months and months and months, maybe even years, and you 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 set the ground and you and you and you and you sort of like you use your intelligence on a, on a, in a physical ground level based initiative in order to to test the ground and make sure that, and do and run a feasibility test. This just seems to have just gone bang straight after like COVID. Everybody starts waking up, Pfizer documents go bang, and then all of a sudden, oh shit! Right, let's do a war. Right, and it's just like, is this the level of political thinking we're looking at on a global level from so-called people that have got political science degrees, etc.? This is just they've got doctorates and things. What are they studying in these things? They just this doesn't seem to make any sense. And that's yeah. why the West, I think, a majority of the media, it's a cakewalk because no one's in touch with what. The political thinking really is. They're just being given it by a diktat, as we've seen with COVID. Stay away from each other. Wear a mask. Do as we say. And this authoritarian, global authoritarian movement over the fear of disease is now just seamlessly merged into this war in in a really sinister and shocking way, I think. It's very, very telling. So yeah. you know, I don't know how you guys think about that, but that's what I'm that's what yeah. I'm seeing from here. And obviously, I'm in a part of the world. I'm over in Cyprus here, where we've got major mass inflation happening. The economy's crumbling. We're getting power cuts every day. We, I might just disappear right now because mm. every day we've had one around this time. I'm kind of thinking, well, why not today? Thank you, whoever you are. But um, we, you know, we've got uh, Turkey getting involved, being a mediator in this crisis. Uh, we've got Israel and, and gas being talked about here, where they're going to put a pipeline in. And the Greeks are kind of like that. We could have a situation just because of energy resources alone uh, actually ends up with more conflict or near conflict, and it's affecting every uh, the, the the regions around it. I mean, the incursion from the north into uh, into Ukraine by Russia came from Belarus, and Belarus have yes. been very odd. Their posturing has changed slightly, and they've, they've stood back a bit where they've said we're not getting involved. And I find that that's an odd one. That's that's really been on a on a on a on a knife edge. Their their positioning yeah. in this. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it is affecting. And we're going to. We've got energy uh, situation, which is obviously a paramount uh, with the petrodollar maybe into the petro yarn. We've got uh, immediate fuel concerns and fuel price hikes that are, seem to be echoing the mass inflation that's been going on since COVID because they know they 
they know they're in trillions and trillions of dollars of debt now and they're just printing money like mad. Um, it, it just seems to me that on one level, you've got a fuel problem. On another level, you've got food obviously coming from that fuel problem with a few food security. And all of these are playbook WF concerns that they've been talking about during the COVID problem. Yeah. And it all seems to be very, very, oh, well, We've been talking about sort of food security. Let's see what happens if we have a war and then see what, how we can play it on the ground. And it's like this kind of, without knowing what's happening on the ground, they just top down controlling the situation from sure. this kind of horrible pieces on the board scenario where they, they're dehumanising the global population via their technocratic ideas and control mechanisms. And basically seeing rooms, command and control centres, they're absolutely obsessed with this on a strange Lovian level, I think. Yeah, you know? interesting. Yeah, I want to um, I, I want to get back to, to this question of whether uh, the Ukraine is, quote unquote, the, the sort of a, a Russian Vietnam here and then have a, a little bit more discussion about that, because I thought I guess my perception has been that that's what the U.S. wanted. I think the yeah. U.S. wanted to set up the Ukraine just like they did in Afghanistan yeah. in the 70s uh, to be this quagmire to to mm -hmm. uh, tempt Russia into the invasion. And then basically, like you noted, Paul, leave the Ukraine out to dry. They kind of promise yeah. Ukraine you'll be part of NATO. We've got we've trained you. We've given you these weapons. We'll have your back. And then well, actually, you know, we're not going to set up a no fly zone. We're not going to send troops in. Sorry, you're on your own, you know. Yeah. Um, but just as a kind of a way to, to set this trap for for Russia and for Putin. Now, my interpretation so far has been that Putin kind of saw the trap coming and flipped it on its head with these um, with this potential to attack the the dollar as world reserve currency to really go at the heart of the US empire to use the invasion as a way to have the to achieve this larger geopolitical goal of eliminating dollar dominance and then allowing for this quote unquote multipolar world where Russia and China can come out at least as equal partners with the United States if not you know, if not yeah. world leaders, while the U.S. crumbles due to the inflation caused by all those dollars rushing back into the American economy. So I had been viewing the whole situation as like, you know, P Putin saw the trap and then he he flipped the game and he turned it into a trap that the U.S. fell right into with all the sanctions and, and all the rest of the stuff that, you know, eliminating uh, the Russian bank's ability to use the SWIFT system. Uh, this was all very predictable. And Putin had, you know, he had a, a, a an end game when all of that came. Um, so I was looking at it as a win for Putin. But again, I think it's very true that the longer the the military action in Ukraine continues, the more potential it does have to become this this Vietnam. The bigger a quagmire it becomes, the the more legitimacy the Russian perspective loses. The longer this happens, um, so it's just an interesting it's an interesting perspective to see uh, where this is going to go. Um, why don't we Why don't we flush this out just a little bit, Riley? Maybe you can start, and then I definitely want to get into the larger the whole petrodollar conversation, but especially in relation to the World Economic Forum and the Fourth Industrial Revolution, because I think that's the the meta analysis that we can start to apply once we get a, more of a handle on on what's really happening on the ground here. I mean, look, I, I, you know, I I am totally open to 
all interpretations. I mean, it's 2022. We're living in totally crazy times. I'm not going to dismiss anything. Seriously. Yeah. You know, but again, my I think that if Putin is really playing this sort of, you know, uh, super strategic long game, I just don't understand how, how can you bungle the actual attack so, so badly, right? I mean, that, for me, that's a big one. Um, another thing that I would point out, and this is something that I actually I was doing research on before this uh, conflict began, is um, Russia's import uh, substitution policy, which began with the start of the Ukraine crisis when there were the original sanctions, the food sanctions, uh, import sanctions with the EU uh, in 2014. Now, this policy was really supposed to make Russia as self-sufficient as possible. The reality is that while it was effective with uh, bolstering Russian agriculture and also meat production and dairy, I mean, we have a situation in Russia where aside from grains, aside from like wheat and other grains, Russia imports all of its seeds from like the United States and the Netherlands. Hmm. And so you have to wonder, like, if this was really this sort of, you know, uh, you know, really strategically well thought out, even something as basic as, you know, where are we going to buy our potato seeds from if there's a third world war? From the United States, I guess. I don't know. You know, there's there's, there's problems with like even basic electronics. Russia is, is, has no real, uh, has no real market presence with this. Um, I mean, we're seeing it's, it's surprising how a country that has so much, so many natural resources and had this policy in place really unfortunately wasn't able to diversify its economy in a way where I personally, I would look at it and say, clearly they were preparing for something huge. I don't actually see that yet, to be honest. Looking at Mm. this objectively, I'd say, okay, they got the foreign exchange reserves. That's pretty cool. Um, But I don't see this as like a situation where if Russia cut the cord with the United States, that they were ready to go. You know, yeah. it seems very sudden to me. It doesn't, it doesn't feel super calculated. Right. Well, I guess I would counter with, you know, what's going on behind the scenes with China, China and India. These are huge markets. China's got the manufacturing and maybe they're, you know, I, I guess in my mind, the negotiations with the BRIC nations over the last five, six years, they have something up their sleeve. Now, that's that's just me, you know, postulating this. I don't know, but I. I can't imagine Putin would overextend himself this much without having some kind of backup, particularly from the Chinese. I think I think a lot will they can they'll be able to, uh, you know, make make up uh, for these losses, you know, import losses with trade with the Chinese for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's just, you know, it's just a very it's just a very just for me, it just feels it doesn't it doesn't feel super, super precise in the way that you would think it would but maybe right. i'm just being too you know nitpicky uh but you know i guess a, a thing that another thing i would add though is, is this idea that you know uh de-dollarization has been a process that's been going on for more than a decade i would say you know sure. even you have even videos of george soros saying we are there's a managed decline of the US dollar and everything is shifting to Asia. This is like George Soros saying this 10 years ago. So for me this idea that you know I I'm not super convinced. I mean you you need a catalyst for this, right? So I mean for example, COVID was used as a catalyst to basically 
just shred the social contract between government and citizens. Uh, and, you know, the reality is that if you want to build back better, you have to demolish everything you have, right? And yeah. m- what I would say is maybe this is, maybe, maybe there is some strategic depth to this idea of the foreign exchange reserves and, you know, um, basically decoupling from the dollar with trade. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that that was on Putin's mind when, when they were planning this, but this was almost sort of the plan on a global scale for a long time. Right. I mean, especially now we see this, all this is coming while we have the central bank digital currencies waiting in the wings, which is pretty weird. I mean, Russia just started piloting its digital currency month and a half ago. Yeah. So it's a very interesting timing for me. And I'm, I'm not really, I haven't really made up my mind on whether I think that this is a coincidence or there's a bigger play here. Yeah. But, but, but there's just, it's a very, very, it's obviously a very useful catalyst for a lot of the Davos agenda that everyone's been talking about for two years at least, right? Yeah, absolutely. Paul? Yeah, I agree. I think uh, what we're seeing is we are looking at this sort of controlled demolition for the instigation of the fourth industrial revolution. And it's in terms of food, energy, uh, agriculture, everything is going to change. And uh, from lab-grown meat right down to you'll own uh, nothing and and be happy. Um, CBDCs, UBI, social credit. Um, And, yeah, so, I mean... A, a nice little war is a bridge gap for them, and it helps uh, achieve so much, really, in terms of um, a dual-edged globalist agenda from top down, but um, in, in ensuring national sovereignty that's very useful for that. Mm-hmm. So it's actually going to sort of – it's not like uh, many people have said over the years that sort of like the UN are going to come in and invade and there's going to be a global world government. I think they're playing it now more on a dualistic uh, nuance where people are going to get more nationalistic, but it's going to be used from that top down. So your sovereignty is going to be digital now. You know, you're going to be <laughs> – you're not going to be able to use the internet without identification very soon, things like that. So access to all services from the government is going to be digitised, isn't it? You know, and we're looking at that kind of digital social contract that we've all got to take part in, and it is just absolutely, um, it's horrendous, really. The way, if they are going about it like this, this is a war crime in itself, isn't it? Because, like, surely humanity needs a little bit more respect from these people, but they don't seem to be giving it. Yeah, I mean, this is the perfect segue into the last part of the conversation, which is, you know, what exactly is the motivation behind this and, and where does the, the World Economic Forum play its part? I think the last time you and I talked, uh, Riley, on my podcast, you know, there's this big question, is is Putin anti-New World Order? Like, there's a lot of people that want to see this as um, Putin standing up against Western imperialism and and the New World Order is... is uh, is basically defined by by this these Western organizations that have been promoting specifically from the United States uh, this kind of World Economic Forum package. But uh, I actually do. I mean, I almost, from my perspective, I think uh, it's very possible that both Putin and Biden are both just all of this, all of this sort of what's happening on the ground in Ukraine. They're both sides are being completely played by the World Economic Forum so they can bring in the Great Reset. I mean, and it is exactly like you were saying, um, where Putin thinks that 
he's using the Ukraine situation. Potentially, this was Putin's thought process to, in order to uh, create this situation of de-dollarization, which then he sees as you know allowing Russia to to become more part of a, a more of an equal partner on the world stage. Maybe this was his end game, but clearly that end game is also. Uh, very supportive of the World Economic Forum's Great Reset, because once the dollar crashes, then they're bringing in central bank digital currencies and all of this other stuff that that have clearly been uh, a part of their agenda now for years. So, you know, I guess that's my perception of events actually right now, is that despite what Putin's motivations may be, or even Biden's motivations or the U.S. government, they may believe truly that they're engaging in this proxy war for all sorts of moralistic reasons and whatever their arguments are. But in fact, the World Economic Forum is actually kind of this meta organization that are pulling the strings on both sides to bring about, you know, the end result that they've been looking for. It's interesting, actually, as you say, with Biden, have you heard the leaked? Uh, it was actually on OAN News Network, this leaked Biden call where he's talking about uh, this is while Trump was in. Uh, basically saying that uh, basically we need to stop Trump from investing in the Ukraine because we need to crash the private bank first. Otherwise, he's going to use a global economic crash in order to uh, fund Ukraine further. And it was really interesting, sort of like his interests with his son in, in, in uh, Ukraine. He was covering his ass, you know. And he right. did this before as well. He's also said this about he's the one who came up with the idea of carpet bombing um, Yugoslavia and things like this. Biden's been a major policy uh, contributor uh, to war over the years, and he seems to be now, uh, it, this is his war. You know, I think um, Putin's given him the opportunity, and if you look at it from a, 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 a top-down, above nationhood, where they're wearing their globalist hats, it does seem to be a conspiracy. And I hate using that word, but I think it is. And yeah. I think we're being played. I think humanity's being played. Um, and the worst thing of all is the fact that they're using World War Three as a threat to get what they want. This is the most despicable tactic I think we've seen in, in modern times. Yeah, it's absolutely. Uh, I can't agree with you more. I mean, they're basically fomenting World War Three after COVID. I mean, they had COVID, <laughs> which which Klaus Schwab clearly stated, you know, here's a great opportunity to help us uh, get the get the great reset off the ground. And now we've got this these threats of World War Three happening. Um, yeah, Riley, what are your thoughts? I know we were talking about, yeah. uh, again, Putin, uh, you, your argument has been that uh, the World Economic Forum is alive and well in Russia, and uh, a lot of this uh, sort of ideological belief that Putin is, is the good guy fighting the New World Order has been unfounded. So, so what are your perspectives on this? Yeah, so two points. I mean, first of all, I totally agree with basically what, what both of you said is, you know, um, I, maybe Putin's intentions are totally genuine, and maybe even Biden's uh, genuinely believes he's fighting for democracy in Ukraine. But, uh, for example, think about it like this: Do you think that Woodrow Wilson and Kaiser Wilhelm knew that World War One would lead to international passports? Right? Mm -hmm. Like you Good start point. a conflict yeah. for completely, yeah, completely even selfish reasons. You don't even care about the Germans, but you're America and you want like a a better trade deal with France. But things get out of your control. You're no longer in charge of, of things that are much bigger than you, right? Yeah. So that's the first thing I would say. And and I don't think that that dynamic has changed at all. In fact, I think it's gotten much more obvious and more blatant, right? So yeah. I think that the reality that Ukraine will be used as a catalyst by not very good people to do not very good things is almost inevitable, in my opinion, unless there's a huge 
paradigm shift and, you know, people stop this madness tomorrow. I think that's coming down the road. The yeah. same thing I would say about Russia and the World Economic Forum is while I still believe in this is almost a different conversation, but I still believe that the World Economic Forum does have tremendous influence in Russia. Um, I, what I would say, though, to people, to skeptics or those who believe that somehow, you know, the ties have been completely cut and Putin was using Klaus Schwab for his, you know, own, uh, you know, goals. What I would say is that, in my opinion, it's very clear that whether Putin is an actual signatory to the Great Reset or not, Russia and China are going to be building a very, very similar system. We're talking about a system. Uh, we're not heading for an age of freedom. You know, people should realize that we're heading for an a an epoch of regimentation, yeah. uh, control, mm -hmm. un, un, never before unprecedented scene control over almost every aspect of life. Uh, surveillance that we've never seen before in human history. This is going to happen with the BRICS nations too. So, yeah. so you can make this argument that you know, oh, but Russia, Russia and China aren't really part of this World Economic Forum, you know, thing. They're gonna, they're gonna do a very similar thing. And so you can make, you could, you could say, well, I prefer that flavor of totalitarianism to that one, but. <laughs> I don't know. That doesn't, that doesn't do a lot. That doesn't do a lot for me personally, honestly. Um, yeah. So, so that's. I mean, I think that people. That's where I get upset when people talk about like sort of Putin resisting. It's like, well, okay, they're resisting a system that they're just going to build anyway in Russia, and there's absolutely no evidence that Russia isn't building that system. In fact, all the evidence points that that, that they are. Sure. And China. Let's be really honest here. China is like the worst offender when it comes to all, the top-down control of civilization yeah i mean china's really really do you know that for, by the way no one talks about this right now china like put 50 million people under yeah. lockdown now because of stealth omicron they're like doing huh. mass testings in shanghai i mean it's crazy what they're doing and they're basically rebooting the the covid scam and why i mean is it to uh, some have theorized that they, they're actually aggravating the the sort of supply chain crisis and uh it, it's just very weird and and you have to remember, again, it's like I even read something very interesting the other day that um, uh, BRICS is like actually creating systems where they're going to be sharing their vaccines. And so all future right. all future biosecurity situations is going to be coordination among BRICS. Well, what does that mean? It just means the BRICS clot shot instead of the Western clot shot. And as we know, actually, they're the same thing, basically. I mean, Russia and right. AstraZeneca, that partnership still exists even after this war. So again, it's like, I don't want to be the party pooper. And I feel like some people probably think I am like this guy who's like pooping on everyone, you know, just like constantly telling people that like try to black people. That's not what I'm saying. I just, I just want people to realize that again, like Putin is not going to bring freedom to the world. Putin is going to bring the same, it's the same Thing, right really, at the end of the day. So. yeah i mean uh you know i certainly um appreciate the realistic perspective like i said I, at the beginning i think i'm the one that probably has i want to believe this idea ideal idealistic interpretation of putin but it, realistically that's not the case i mean we're seeing there there's so much else going on um and i definitely agree with you about china i, I remember i think we're all familiar with the uh, rockefeller foundations i think it was called scenarios for the future that lockstep 
that that lockstep section where they just explicitly, I mean, came out and said, well, in the future, there might be a virus and we might have to, uh, you know, shut down economies. And this is going to be very difficult for Western style democracies. But, you know, we'll have China as our example. And I absolutely believe that that upper class, that world economic forum class, that meta class, uh, actually loves the Chinese system. I think and from, oh, yeah, from yeah. the point of view of, a, of an oligarch billionaire where you're viewing the unwashed masses, you know, and how do we control these people so they don't figure out that we're all screwing them and, and revolt against us, you know? They're looking at China going, wow, you know, these social credit systems, uh, yeah. all, all of this, uh, this technocratic uh, infrastructure, the surveillance infrastructure, uh, this is perfect. This is exactly what we want. And that's when it comes down to um, this idea that this whole Ukraine thing is just exactly as we described a catalyst to bring about this world shift into the Great Reset, into the fourth industrial yeah. industrial revolution. Um, and that there's actually again, and this, you know, Paul, what you were saying, this strikes to the heart of what people call conspiracy theory. So you know, maybe we could kind of spend the last 10 or 15 minutes really just kind of talking about realistic assessments of what's happening, because so many people don't want to believe that there is a, a group of rich people who conspire together to control the world. And I think people like us can look at, well, there's the World Economic Forum. What are they doing there? You know, there here's the Bilderberg Group. Here's where they're funding the Council on Foreign Relations. Here's all of the places where the rich people, you know, either get together themselves to make these plans or hire academics who are going to help them make these kinds of plans. And uh, so it seems obvious to me, but so many people want to stay in that place where they see nation states warring against each other. And they, they seem to have no awareness that, you know, many corporations are, are far larger than most nation states, like just in yeah. terms of the, 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 the gross national product, you know, or, yeah. or, you know, the amount of money that they make every year, uh, the amount of power that they have over a lot of these uh, governments all over the world. I think you've got to take this into account in any kind of analysis. Um, so what do you guys think about, about that? Uh, I guess uh, just in terms of this meta analysis for the last part of the conversation, Paul, you want to get started on this one? Yeah, I mean, um, I did some investigations into who's funding and, and the different uh, social credit systems in in, uh, in China, and came to, uh, with the same names as as uh, you know these hedge fund managers like Vanguard and BlackRock and right. all these people, Slate Street, etc. And if you look into like the Russia's three top three companies, same thing. Uh, you know, we've got top down stakeholder capitalism where the WF, especially the high members of the WF. I've never been altogether sure about how the hierarchy works in that organisation, and, and I don't think we're seeing the cream of the crop at all. I don't think we're seeing the major global players and the people that run those hedge funds. I think we're looking at the members of those hedge funds are the stakeholder capitalists that, that Klaus Schwab talks about, that he wants a global stakeholder capitalist-run society. I, it doesn't marry the two ideas of a global capitalist uh, society run as a a communitarian kind of globalized solar punk beautiful disneyfied right. version of reality those two seem to come head to head and it doesn't seem to be very thought, well thought out um so yeah i do believe that we have a, a situation where we have uh, a lot of hidden hands at the very top 
who have, who have all of the resources, all of the wealth, and can control people like Unilever, you know, major suppliers of products all over the world. We have these huge conglomerates in media, and any every walk of society now is being controlled top down by these stakeholder capitalists, who are lords, ladies, dukes, earls, uh, going from royals right through to the political classes and into your, your uh, Fortune 500 Uber leaders, uh, and they've all got stakes in every game. So uh, that's that's the reality of the situation on, on an economic level. We have this technology already in place. It's not like it's coming. It's here, folks. Um, we are living under it. And wars seem to be one of the products they want to push on the public. Right. Right. So, Riley? I mean, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have a whole lot to add to that, but I guess just giving sort of an example from here in Russia, because I think that people are rightfully sort of fascinated by you know how sovereign is the russian government like is it part of this greater plan and you know for example i'll tell you uh when right when the sanctions hit and basically the russian stock market took this massive beating uh guess who bought up all of the cheap uh you know russian bonds it was uh uh stanley morgan and goldman sachs wow yeah wow yeah yeah so look you know and, and we're talking about uh, for example, uh, just last week, right, you have, um, I mean, for example, one of the major industries that hasn't left Russia is the Big Pharma, is Big Pharma. Big Pharma has mm. not left Russia. They're still here. And, of course, they're, they're saying, oh, because it would be so it'd be so terrible to all of our clients in Russia to deprive them of our medicines, you know, and blah, blah, right. blah. And what, what I would say is, you know, I'm, I, I don't personally subscribe to any sort of you know this one guy controls everything and this is exactly how it works but i really do believe that it's horribly naive to believe that you know vladimir putin is the guy who is basically leading the fate of the russian state and he's totally in control and he doesn't he doesn't have any other you know there's no other influences of power that may not even be russian you know that it may be totally outside of his control and actually, right now in Russia, we're seeing a very interesting dynamic where a lot of the big sort of oligarchs and, and movers and shakers in Russia are basically deciding whether they want to stay in Russia or go to the West, you know. And, and it's interesting, not in the sense that I think that it shows um, that it shows that, you know, the conflict in Ukraine is a good or a bad thing and that it has somehow disrupted everything, but it just shows how uh, this system somehow, no matter what you do, the, some parasites are always staying, you know, it's like, right. like, like <laughs> yeah. so many, there's so many different kinds of parasites. Like maybe some of them aren't like totally on board, but you just can't get rid of them, you know, and, yeah. and none of them. And what's also interesting is that you have this really, and I think it's happening in the West too, is that you have all these talks of like the traitors and the fifth columnists and how, like, if you don't fully support Zelensky, you're a traitor. If you don't fully support Putin, you're a traitor. Right. And it's so interesting because the people who are really making us suffer, they're never accused of being the traitors, right? Like, right. for example, you never, you never see, for example, my mayor, Sergei Sobyanin, who forced this unproven, dangerous clot shot on the population and locked us down and deprived us of medical care. This guy is now saying that uh, he's protecting Muscovites from uh, a psychological information warfare from Ukraine. The guy who pushed COVID on us for two years is protecting me from an info war. I mean, it's just so comical, right? And so, <laughs> right. Interview is the fifth columnist, but of course, they're now saying if you don't 100% back this war, you're a traitor. And so it's just, it's like, 
what what can you say? And everything's yeah. so crazy now, you know? It's a switch, isn't it? It's a bait and switch move. The COVID thing galvanized people. We could even say COVID was a test run for this and for the actual uh, re-nationalization of political uh, control uh, in each zone that they want to control and their economic zones on one level and then their sovereignty, they're bringing it back. I mean, the, the digitization agenda is a sovereign issue now because we're talking about online harms and safety and and it's just like exactly the same way as they're using cryptocurrency and decentralized cryptocurrency as some sort of money laundering and uh, gun running and paedophile threat. They're doing it now with the on, with just the internet. So it links those two ideologies where they're, ca- they're calling foul and scaring us about paedophiles all the time while Ghislaine Maxwell and Epstein didn't right. kill himself, did he? Yeah. You know, um, And you've got Maxwell waiting to, to, to hopefully spill the beans, which she never will. Or, you know, She's just going to get disappeared. Mm-hmm. But this top-down elite control that, that has so, been, so long been called conspiracy theory is so obviously real. Um, I do urge people to try and, and, and do your own research, use discretion. Um, there's a lot of information out there to, to try and to, to dissemble, uh, disassemble, uh, reconstitute it and always be aware that what I believe is happening is that it's always been a global cult. I think the, the idea of a global agenda is real, but I think that the cult control now is, is a political class that needs to be disbanded and we need really need to uh, reassemble on, on national levels, not into the over-nationalist idea, but we need to start thinking about what communities mean on local levels and what international community means, what the UN actually represents, and maybe we need to start rethinking and restructuring. Maybe this will come out of this. If this war actually becomes protected and actually gets, uh, maybe expands and becomes a global affair, what happened after the last two world wars? I mean, you had the, the formation of the League of Nations and the formation of the UN, and we have to look at what the globalists have planned. Maybe they're going to disband the UN or rename it from Al-Qaeda to ISIS. Sure, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a rebranding exercise, I think, in the next 50 years. And I think we're going to see that whole agenda come out. And remember, these people don't really care about timeframes. It could take five years. It might be speeding up because, obviously, the global economic crisis has been happening since, well, 2000 and I think maybe 9-11 into 2008. And that's definitely happening. There is real worry that the whole system is going to collapse. Yeah, uh, This war is bolstering them for a bit. It's a stopgap for them. But if this expands, they're going to use it for reasons. And, and I would say that we're going to look at a, globe, a more global sort of run situation based on this technocracy. Yeah. So, yeah, that's where we're heading. And I think uh, we need to start thinking about what Oath Keepers do. Like we've had COVID where doctors, many, many health professionals have basically said nothing and it's an absolute disgrace. The Hippocratic Oath means nothing to them. We've got a judiciary whose oaths mean nothing to them. We need to start sorting this out, what these people are actually doing in their places of power and why they're there. And we need to start sort of thinking about how us as human beings can actually say, no, I'm not doing that anymore. Just say no. And it's really start thinking, but also be proactive in your in your efforts and try. Oh, uh, I think we lost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was a that was a legendary conclusion, too. Looks like his, his power probably shut off. So uh, we'll have to finish up without him. But um you know, these are these are all really interesting points. I think that um, you know, so many people are hesitant to see uh, 
the, the you know the wizard of oz behind the curtain which is these these upper classes these the the machinations of the wef and and uh and uh, these other major players that that really i think i mean i all the evidence points that these organizations transcend the nation states and if you don't take this into account then your analysis uh, is is not going to be as nuanced and as refined, and I and unfortunately, I think that's where like what you were talking about before, Riley, the the black and white, you know, us versus them interpretations come into play, and people are just so adamant that you know either Putin is the hero or Putin is evil, and there's no right. ability right. to like see the the nuance that is actually happening in terms of the the power games that are played on that level and the, and the um, unbelievable wealth that the oligarchs and the corporate structure uh, really has. And they're working behind the scenes to fabricate so much of what we see as reality from our perspective, you know? Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, you know, I think that there really needs to be, you know, we were talking earlier. It's so upsetting that this conflict has made, any kind of nuanced discussion possible, you know, and uh, it's scary because the consequences are so severe for us normal people. And we're not, we're not allowed to talk about it openly, you know, about like what's coming down the road. And for me, that's the, that's the scariest part about this. You know, it's not even about who's right or wrong or whether Putin is good or bad. It's like, am I going to be able to feed my kid? You know, right. You know, and it's, it's scary. It's really generally, a scary situation for for I think for all of us, and um, it's so sad that we live in this age now where it's constant constant fear, one stress after the other, and it, you know I, I honestly I see this as the sort of the rise of the biosecurity state for all of us, where mm-hmm. there's no going back to normal. You know, it's everything. Everything has to be red alert. You know, everything is your you know just like that. You're locked down, or you know there's a war, and so we can't you know stock the shelves anymore and it's just it's how did this happen it's crazy yeah yeah well it's frustrating um and i'm not exactly sure what the solutions are it is kind of uh like this whole conversation and the way that it's wrapping up i mean i think regardless of what your positions are about the ukraine about russia about putin about the united states about nato um i think ultimately we have to really start taking into account exactly what you're saying that no matter what side of this that argument you're on we're all headed towards this fourth industrial revolution and it's not going to be good for any of us so how how do we even approach it right yeah exactly yeah well cool riley thanks for coming on and thanks for giving us your perspective uh from actually living in in russia and and having that uh that on the ground eyewitness account that uh that makes you uh, a primary source of information for my audience <laughs> of thanks for having me on it's always good talking so we should stay in touch and definitely yeah definitely I, I, everything will work out hopefully yeah right we'll do what we can do <laughs> You want to let people know where they can find your uh, your stuff, your Substack, and and your website. Yeah, I'm just uh, I'm on Substack at edwardslavsquat.substack.com, and I'm on Twitter, but not very actively. But Twitter, just Riley Wagman, my name. So okay, that sounds great, Riley. Yeah, thanks again, awesome. and yeah. and 
Uh, I'll let you all know that uh, you can find my stuff at www.theshiftnow.com. I am on Facebook at Doug McKenty, uh, at D McKenty on Twitter. And you can find my blog on Substack. It's called The Populist Papers. So just look it up uh, or you can go to theshiftnow.com, find the link there. All right. Well, hopefully, I don't think we solved any of the world's problems today, but I do think the conversation really uh, can clarify a lot of the craziness and a lot of the information, a lot of the propaganda that everybody's getting, it's getting thrown at everybody from, from every angle. So uh, anything we can do to kind of clear up a little bit, all of those muddied waters, uh, hopefully will be uh, of benefit to the people who check this out. So thanks everybody for listening. And thanks again, Riley. Really appreciate it. Of course. Yep. Take care.